So as we jump into Psalm 16, I just want to offer a brief refresher. Last summer was a long time ago, and we offered a lot of the context of the book of Psalms last summer. And so just to to sort of refresh what we covered then. Each psalm has several different contexts. First, the psalm has the context of the original composition. This would be found in the superscription, which if you're looking at your Bibles, is the small phrase written right above the verse. So ours here, Psalm 16, says, a miktam of David. That superscription is inspired scripture. The title that your version gives it is not, but the superscription is inspired scripture that communicates something to us about the context of that psalm. Now, with a miktam of David, we don't know what miktam means, but it is likely some kind of musical notation signaling the sort of song that this psalm would have been. The second context for each psalm is their position in the Psalter itself. Remember, the book of Psalms was ultimately compiled following the Jewish exile, likely by someone like Ezra. So we have to think about the sorts of things that the Jews during that time would have been thinking about. Remember, the Jews had been thrown out of the land of Israel because they had broken covenant with God and brought about God's judgment. They had the promise that God would ultimately bring about some kind of restoration through a Davidic king, but at this point, the Jews were just sitting and waiting. They were sitting in a broken city with broken walls, with a broken temple, waiting for God to do something. You can imagine the sorts of questions that might have been running through their heads. Has God forgotten us? What are are we supposed to do now? Do we have any hope? The Psalter was compiled to instruct the Jewish people facing these questions and numerous difficulties. The Jews were to learn from the example of the prayers and emulate the faithful. They were to learn from the themes running through the Psalms and put their hope in the love and sovereignty of the Lord God Almighty who continues to work in their midst despite their unfaithfulness. They were to continue looking for and hoping for the restoration of all things through the coming son of David. And so Psalm 16 is located in book 1. Now, book one functions as sort of the introduction to the psalms, and and the, the story arc of book one gives us the sufferings of David in his rise to the throne. And so our psalm this morning, then, is functioning on a couple different levels. In our psalm, we will see David suffering and waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises, just as the Israelites after the exile were suffering and waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promises, just as we ourselves are suffering and waiting on the Lord to fulfill his ultimate promise of the restoration of all things in a new heavens and new earth. Second, we will see David as the representative of the faithful. David as the king of Israel was the representative, or the the anointed king was the representative of the people of Israel, particularly those who, like David, had a heart after God's own heart. And so in this, David's example points to the one who is the truly righteous one, to the one who is truly after God's own heart, Jesus Christ. And so our main point this morning is hope in God's faithfulness. Hope in God's faithfulness. 
With that, let's jump into our text. The first thing that we have to think about with Psalm 16 is what comes immediately before it. Look in your Bibles back at Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is portraying the negative example of the wicked. But notice who the wicked are in verse 2 of Psalm 14. There David writes, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. The answer, given in verse 3, they have all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. Mankind has turned away from God, they have been corrupted, none of them do good, they do not call upon the Lord. This psalm then gives us the contrary picture of who is the opposite of the wicked, namely the faithful in verse 6. You, that is the wicked, would shame the plans of the poor. The poor there are the poor in spirit, the poor in heart, or, or the faithful ones. But the Lord is his refuge. So the difference is the wicked reject God. They, they are corrupted. They do not do good. The faithful are those who seek God, who put their refuge and their trust in the Lord. But at the end of Psalm 14, what we're left with is the cry out for salvation. We all need salvation. Israel at this time needed salvation. David himself needed salvation. And this leads us to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, who shall dwell on the Lord's holy hill? This question is immediately raising the issue of who can enter in to God's presence. We were created in God's image which means we find ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate purpose in right relationship to God. Apart from God, we are simply a broken picture in need of restoration, and because of our sin, we cannot enter into the presence of God. Our sin has made a separation between us and our God, a separation that we cannot fix. So this psalm is asking the question, who shall dwell on the Lord's holy hill? Who is it that can enter the presence of God and there find satisfaction and joy? Look at David's answer, verses 2 through 5. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So who shall dwell on the hill of the Lord? The righteous. Given Psalm 14, the answer is no one because all the children of men have turned astray. All the children of men have fallen into wickedness. Psalm 14 highlights the worthlessness of the children of man. And Psalm 15 demonstrates why that is a problem because the wicked cannot find satisfaction apart from God and they don't have access to God because of their wickedness. We were created to be in perfect, complete relation to God. But because of our sin, we are separated from him, and because of our sin, we are unable to repair that separation. The only way that we get to enjoy the presence of the, the joy and the pleasure and the mercy of God is through God's own initiative. This was true for David. 
This was true for the Jews in exile. And friends, this is true for us. And so this brings us to our psalm this morning, Psalm 16. Given Psalm 14, Psalm 15, how would you kick this thing off? Probably something like, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I'm wicked. My only hope of joy and satisfaction is to be with you, but because of my wickedness, that will never be. Lord, act on my behalf. Preserve me. The word preserve here also means keep. It is what the Lord commanded Adam to do in the Garden of Eden, to till the ground and to keep it. This is what David prays for God to do, to preserve or keep him. But this raises the question, right? Preserve him how? Preserve him how? More than salvation from the wicked, David needs salvation from his own wickedness. The preservation is that God would uphold David's integrity, that God would grant David the grace to pursue righteousness because only the righteous can dwell on the hill of God. In the consideration of David's suffering, in consideration of David's waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, David is grappling with this central issue, how can I be made righteous before God? The Jews at the time of the exile, who would have been suffering various things, they, they would have been, been trying to rebuild the walls, as we see in Nehemiah, or trying to rebuild the temple, as we see in Ezra, as they're being warred with by those outside of the camp, would they have been wrestling with hopelessness? They're suffering in, in the midst of waiting for God to fulfill their promises. They need to consider these things. And when we are suffering, friends, how tempting is it for us to focus on our circumstances in such a way that it excuses our own sin? We whine and we cry and we call God's goodness into question. But we need to learn from David here. Your circumstances do not negate your need for obedience. Your circumstances do not serve to justify sinful actions. And the only way that we can avoid doing these things is through the preservation of God. We all stumble and we all fall. And our only hope is that God will show us grace. The second thing that this verse highlights is the foundation of David's prayer. Why, why would David even pray this? And David prays this because he is confident that God is both willing and able to do something. That is why David has taken refuge in God. God has promised David that David will take the throne. God has anointed him, and so David's prayer reveals that David's hope is in God's faithfulness, that God will do what he has said he will do. But until that time, David needs preservation. David needs to be kept. He needs to be kept faithful and guarded. David understands that he needs righteousness. He needs covenant faithfulness because he is tempted to do otherwise. David prays because David is fully aware that his only hope is God's gracious intervention. And David prays because David's hope is in God's faithfulness to keep his promises. So look at what David says in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from here, from you. The word good here does not simply mean health and possessions. It is true that apart from God, we have no good things. But again, David is focused on obedience. And David is saying that apart from the sovereign grace of God, nothing good can be attributed to him. 
If left to himself, David does not produce righteousness, nor does David have vitality or health. Apart from God, David has no good. Apart from God, it is suffering and sorrow all the way down. This statement bolsters David's plea for preservation by declaring that God is Lord and that apart from God, David is utterly hopeless. So David prays for intervention. If the Lord had said, David, why are you praying to me? David would respond something like this, because you are my Lord, you are my sovereign king, and I have nothing apart from you. I am utterly dependent upon your kindness and your faithfulness for any good. And again, this would have been true for the Jews in exile. And this is true for us as well. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in 2 Peter chapter 2. We stand in the new covenant awaiting the final culminations of all things that God has promised to us. And our hope is that God is faithful to his promise as we wait. During this time, we are called to patiently wait and we are called to exercise faithfulness. But just like David, our faithfulness is dependent upon the grace of God. We are called to put to death the deeds of the body, yes, but our victory is from the Lord, and so all the glory for that victory is His alone. We have nothing that we have not received. All of our time and gifts and talents are from the grace of God. Do you thank Him like that's true? Does your heart reflect the gratitude uh, uh, that, that is, is corresponding to the amount that we depend upon him. Do you live as though your life belongs first and foremost to him? He has given you life. God has given you his spirit. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has given you Christ. Everything that you have is an undeserved gift. Sit with that for a minute this week and just contemplate that you deserve nothing, that you are owed nothing, and then consider what the grace of God has given you in Christ Jesus. The example that David is giving us here is not one of perfection. David's example shows us that sin is real, that obedience is important, and that true joy is available. Life is not a game. And when we come here, we are not just playing church. The Christian life is a battle. We need constant resource from God, and God is willing and able to give us those resources. Apart from Him, we have no good. Do we pray like that? Do we worship like that? Do we read our Bibles like that? Hope in God's faithfulness and fight. And brothers and sisters, we are shoulder to shoulder in this. We strive together awaiting the glorious promises of God. Which leads us to the next verse as David shifts his gaze to the people of God. The bottom line is this. The people of God love the people of God. Anytime you meet someone who shares a hobby or a favorite sports team or kids the same age, there's an immediate form of kinship. How much truer should this be when we find that we have Jesus Christ in common? Here in verse 3, David professes his love for God's people. And again, this is important with the context. Psalm 14.4 tells us that the wicked devour the people of God. Psalm 15.4 tells us that, that the, the righteous honors those who fear the Lord. 
the wicked despise God's people, but the righteous love God's people. And David here is identifying himself with the righteous. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. God's people are not the perfect. They are those who have declared that the Lord is the Lord, and they are those who say that apart from God, they have nothing. Those are the ones who are loved by God, who have been called according to his purpose, those who are loyal to him. The excellence of the saints has nothing to do with their own personal excellence or desirability. Rather, their excellence is found in God's work. God has set his love upon them. He has set them apart. They are the ones in whom God delights. Therefore, they are the ones in whom David delights. David does not delight in the wicked. David does not delight in the strong or the brave or the famous. No, David delights in the ones in whom God delights. Simply put, if you love God, you will love what God loves. In this case, you will love the people of God, those who profess his lordship and their utter dependence on him. This was an important point for David to consider. I don't know how many of you remember back to 1 Samuel, as Aaron preached through that a couple years ago, or a year ago. But in 1 Samuel chapter 27, remember that while David was fleeing from Saul, for a minute, David joined with the Philistines and actually fought on their behalf. David very easily could have held a grudge against the Israelites or against Saul. David could have acted self-interestedly and stolen from the Israelites and from their enemies to enrich himself. But even during that time, David never raised his hand against the people of God. The whole time, David fought to protect the Israelites. David loved the people of God and was committed to serving them. Again, this serves as an example not only for the Jews in exile, but for us today. And it, it leads us to ask the question, Christian, how do you feel about the people of God, the church? First Peter calls us, the church, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ as David loved the, the people in his time? Do you find delight in being with the people of God and in hearing about the work of God in their lives? Or do you view the church as a means to your own ends? First, uh, Psalm 14 talks about the wicked devouring the people of God. Devouring does not necessarily mean killing. Devouring the people of God can be turning those people into an object that you then use for your own purposes rather than recognizing that they are God's possession. And as God's possession, we recognize that God is beautifying and growing them into his image according to his perfect plan, and we rejoice at the tapestry of God's grace that's being weaved in our midst. Friends, if you love God, you will love his people. David loved the people of God. He sees them as excellent and finds his delight in them because they worship and submit to God. This is contrary to the wicked who run after other gods. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, it can be hard for us to conceptualize idolatry in our day and age. It does anyone, when you are walking through a park and you see a statue, 
Do you feel a deep temptation to just bow down and worship it? Probably not. And we can picture that as the way that the people in the Old Testament are functioning, that they just sort of fall victim to every statue that they behold. But the picture of idolatry in the Old Testament was not just bowing down to a statue. It was the giving of some benefit for you giving something of yourself. Now, Baal was one of the gods that the Jews were tempted to worship. Baal was the god of fertility. Fertility is both childbearing and crop production or land fertility. So picture this. You're an Old Testament Jew and you're a farmer. Your entire livelihood depends on growing crops. If you don't grow crops, you and your family don't eat. You plant the grain and the land goes into a drought. Nothing is growing and vegetation is beginning to die. Day after day after day goes by and nothing. You begin to consider your empty barn and you see your children getting hungrier and hungrier and more and more emaciated. And then you see the people around the temple of Baal. But they all seem to be well clothed. They all seem to be well fed. They aren't suffering like you are. And they say that all you have to do is make one little sacrifice on their altar, just one pinch of incense or, or one dove, and everything will be taken care of. You will be provided for. Your suffering can end. Can we imagine something like that in our day and age? Just, just say the pronoun, and you can keep your job. It's just a pronoun. Just say the pronoun and you can keep your job. Just affirm and celebrate an alternative lifestyle or you will be labeled a bigot and scorned and shamed in public. Participate and things will go well for you. Don't participate and you will be made to suffer. The temptation with idolatry was seeking benefits offered by seeking to do something apart from the will of God. Seeking something on your own time frame, through your own means, in a way that subverts God's sovereignty and authority over your life. All idolatry is built on the idea that somehow we can subvert the plan and purpose of God and go at it through some other means, which is why the fool says in his heart, Psalm 14, there is no God. Idolatry is choosing something as your highest good above God and then making everything else in your life the means to achieving whatever that good is. This can be a job. This can be a lifestyle. This can be status, fame, sex, having a family. It can be anything. When we make those things ultimate, and God becomes the means by which we attain those things, if God is not giving us the thing, we will find a different means. But friends, God is never the means to our ends. We are always the means to God's end, which is his own glory. The pursuit of accomplishing your own goals by rejecting the sovereignty of God will only bring sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, ending in the infinite sorrow of eternal damnation. Idolatry cannot offer true hope because no matter which idol you choose, it cannot offer you hope beyond the grave. There is only one who can rescue us from the punishment of sin, God alone, and we must hope in his faithfulness. David recognizes the futility and sorrow of idolatry, and so David chooses the Lord as his portion. 
Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David rejects the idols and chooses God as his portion and his cup. Now, I just finished Treasure Island, so you're all going to get a pirate illustration. (laughs) If you are a pirate in search of hidden treasure, you're on the boat with the crew looking for hidden treasure, and then you find it. You bring the chest back on board, and you dump it across the, the floor of the ship, and you see all of it gleaming before you. The gold and the diamonds and the rubies and the silver all gleaming before you. And then the captain puts his hand on your shoulder, and he says, you get to be first. Choose whatever you want. You have it before you, the whole treasure. You get to take the very pieces that you most desire. That is your chosen portion. David is saying that above everything, above everything in the world that is gleaming before him, health, wealth, prosperity, power, all of it's gleaming before him, David chooses God as his portion. David was promised the throne. He was promised kingship. He was promised a nation. And David is choosing God over all of it. God is a better treasure than anything that can be found in this world. And on top of that, God holds David's lot. What's a lot? The lot was an instrument used for things like dividing land and possessions. If you remember, the the soldiers in Christ's crucifixion divided Christ's garment based on lot. You would draw lots to see what part of it you get. Today it would be like flipping a coin. The reason we do things like this is because it seems fair, because it seems random. But Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. David had confidence that whatever happened, God was behind the scenes making everything work. In the seeming random circumstances of the day-to-day, David's confidence was that God was acting on his behalf, that David's lot was in the hand of the Lord. Now, remember, David is being pictured in the midst of suffering here. And David had his fair share of suffering, did he not? He was persecuted by Saul. He was persecuted by Absalom. He was constantly fleeing when it seemed that the kingdom was being ripped from his hands. And yet David is able to say, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Again, this conjures the image of a a piece of land that is given to you as an inheritance. Right now, David was in the midst of suffering, afraid, and on the run. How would you describe that if you were to describe it as a piece of land? Not positively. But David did not look at his circumstances and say, this barren scrub land that you have given me. No, David looks at at his inheritance as pleasant, as beautiful. David looks upon his inheritance as the ultimate prize, as the best portion of land. Even in the midst of suffering and not receiving what he wanted, David was able to say, things are good, because he had not set his hope and affections upon attaining worldly success and blessing. David had set his hope and affections on receiving God himself, and no circumstance was able to take him from the hand of God. God is faithful. David was not focusing on a kingdom or throne or all the glory and wealth that comes with that because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? 
David was not worried about his prospects because for David, God was enough. Again, David served as a model for the Jews coming out of exile. The Jews were returning to Jerusalem, finding the walls torn down. They were finding out that the priests had all intermarried so that there was no priestly lineage left. They were finding the temple in ruins and the city desolate. They had enemies on every side. They were facing impossible odds. And the admonition is this, hope in God's faithfulness. Seek God as your reward and labor in faith and labor in faith because of what he is able to accomplish. At the end of the day, if you don't see Jerusalem rebuilt, at the end of the day, if you don't see a son of David on the throne, what is it to you? You have God as your chosen portion. God is faithful to keep his promises in his own time. And the admonition is much the same to us today, isn't it? We have the great promises about Christ's return. We have the great promises about the new heavens and the new earth where every tear will be wiped from our eye. We have the great promises about all things being made right and ultimate and final restoration. But here we are, still laboring, still struggling, still fighting, still waiting 2,000 years later. We have been waiting and waiting, and the exhortation is this. Christian hope in God's faithfulness. God has promised, and he cannot lie. He will bring his promises to pass in his time according to his plan and for his glory. But Christian, in the meantime, we get the very presence of God. Be content with that. Waiting is hard, especially in the midst of suffering. This is the very reason that David is praying for preservation. When we are tempted and tried, we are weak and in desperate needs of God's grace. And that is exactly what God provides. Look at verses 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David prays for preservation. And here we have the Lord answer that very prayer. The Lord gives David counsel. David's heart instructs him in the night, and God's presence is with David. Those are the means by which God is preserving David and answering his prayer. So first, the Lord gives counsel to David. How did the Lord bring counsel to David? When we seek deliverance or pray to God for preservation or aid, oftentimes we can act like this is somehow going to happen by magic. It's going to magically appear. But Psalm 1 gives us some insight here. Psalm 1 speaks of the blessed man and his counselors. The blessed man does not receive counsel from the wicked. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Rather, this man delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. God's counsel comes to us through God's holy word as it's put into our hearts and minds. God's counsel is not magic, but it is supernatural. And when we pray to God for grace, we should turn then to the means of grace, the word of God. The instruction of the heart then is restating the same thing. The blessed man is meditating on the law day and night. And in Psalm 4, David writes, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Given Psalm 1, what do we think it is that David is pondering in his own heart at night? Again, it's the law of the Lord. 
Christians, if we do not take up the word of God, we are dramatically hamstringing the work of God in our lives because God works through his powerful word, which is the sword of the spirit. If you say that you want insight from God, take up your Bible. If you say that you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. If you want counsel from God, we have it right here in front of us. We must be people of the book because this is how God has worked in his people. Moses gave the Israelites God's written word for them, and they were commanded in Deuteronomy effectively to hang it from their noses, to teach their children about it when they were sitting and standing and coming and going. The whole life was centered around what has the Lord said. That's what we need to be as Christians. God's people have been committed to the power and authority of God's written word from the very beginning. It is absolutely vital to a vibrant and healthy Christian life. Indeed, if you are struggling with something, my first admonition to you or my first question is how much time are you spending with the word of God? And when we are communing with God, when when we're having sweet fellowship with the Lord in his word and in prayer, Christian, what courage do we have knowing that God is at our right hand? If God is with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, what reason do we have to fear? We cannot be shaken. David prayed for preservation, and God answered that prayer. And brothers and sisters, as we ask God to meet with us, ask God to commune with us, as we ask God to preserve with us, are we closing the means by which he's going to do so? The fight is won in the daily grind, and the only way that we have strength for the fight is being resourced by the grace of God. And the way, friends, that we receive the grace of God is through the Holy Scripture. Our hope is that God was working, that God is working, and that God will forever be working in us. God is faithful to keep his promises. David knows this, and David rejoices. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David has met God. God has communed with David. God has preserved David. And God's presence gives David hope and courage to face everything coming before him. David trusts that God will not abandon him. And David knows that he has chosen the best portion because in God there is fullness of joy. But David also knows that he is sinful and cannot dwell in the presence of God where everlasting pleasure is found. So David has to trust the grace of God knowing that God has promised to crush the head of the serpent, that God has promised to ultimately bring deliverance, and and that God has, has demonstrated that he will do this by giving Israel the sacrificial system. But they also knew that the sacrificial system was ineffective. As the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sins. David knows that his only hope is God's faithfulness. 
And David knows that something's going to have to change. And so as David is pinning this, he is ultimately writing it about and for someone else. The Apostle Peter, preaching in the book of Acts chapter 2, testifies that this portion of this psalm cannot be about David because it says right here, you will not abandon your holy one, or my soul to Sheol, nor let your holy one see corruption. And David saw corruption. Peter says David's grave is with us today. David's body saw corruption. David was not writing about himself, but David was writing about his own son. The same son from Psalm 2 who would sit on the throne and receive sonship from God himself. The same son who would break the nations with a rod of iron. The same son who would receive the nations as his inheritance. Who would crush the head of the serpent and through whom a new priesthood would be established. A priesthood that would actually accomplish righteousness and peace, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the death of the spotless Lamb of God. David endured suffering and set the Lord before him. But Jesus Christ, when he was facing the cross, sweat drops of blood, he set the Lord before him as Jesus Christ took upon his back the sins of his people and faced the judgment of eternal damnation for the sins of his people. His confidence was that God was with him and that he would not be shaken. Jesus marched forward into the fury of the wrath of God with full confidence and complete trust in his heavenly Father. David's trials were nothing compared to the trials of his son, Jesus Christ. The Jews in exile never saw anything even close to the suffering that Jesus Christ endured. And Jesus Christ set his face toward Jerusalem like flint and marched forward because that is what was required for God's promises to be kept. God is faithful to keep his promises. And God promised that he would deal with sin. God promised that he would forgive sin. God promised that he would give us his spirit. And the only way that this could happen was through the satisfaction of divine justice. God himself had sworn against his own hurt to bring us home. And Christians, we can have confidence in God's faithfulness. We can hope in God's faithfulness to keep his word because he has demonstrated the height of his faithfulness in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who can look at Jesus bleeding and dying and question God's commitment to accomplish his promises? David endured temptation. David endured trial for the joy set before him. But David's joy was ultimately only attainable because of his coming son who would pay for his sins and sit on the throne forever. All of David's hopes culminated in the crucifixion of the Holy One. All of Israel's hopes culminated in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And Christian, all of our hope is grounded in the crucifixion in the Son of God because Jesus Christ's death is the only way that we can be open to experience the full presence of joy that David is talking about here. Look again at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand our pleasures forevermore indeed friends that is what it is to dwell on the holy hill to dwell on the mount of god 
And the only way that we can get there is to be made righteous because we have no righteousness in ourselves. The death of Christ means that we get to experience the fullness of joy in the presence of God because our sins are forgiven and we have been declared righteous. We have been made sons and daughters so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because the fountain of grace has been opened to us. Jesus Christ endured the destruction of his body and soul under the colossal weight of sin to accomplish what David himself could not accomplish, the redemption of his people, the forgiveness of sins. And our hope today is that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is working in us, in our midst, as the gospel goes forth, that people continue to be brought into his kingdom so that that the people of God, the excellent ones in the land, may be increased so that the lamb who was slain may receive the reward of his suffering. God continues to work bringing all things to climax in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we have the hope of eternal joy. We have the hope of being in the presence of God, of experiencing pleasure forevermore at his right hand. And so, Christian, what does this psalm exhort us to do? The psalm exhorts us to look to Christ. It exhorts us to trust Christ. And Christians, it exhorts us to hope in the faithfulness of God to his promises. Please pray with me.